the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome on board. Five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on your basic uh, Wednesday hump day. Made it halfway through the week so far, right? That's good news, and uh, looks like the weather going to sort of hold off for a while. We had a lot of overnight rain, a little bit of that impact of the commute heading in this morning. Hopefully will not have as much impact as you make your way home tonight. We've got our good buddy Michael Bennett hanging out in the KFAX Traffic Center, so uh, we'll stay on top of the commute for you and uh, hopefully um, give you some good food for thought along the way. Coming up on today's program, we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to be joined later on by Marlo Tucker. She is the director of the California Chapter of Concerned Women for America. An assembly bill that we talked about a number of years ago, AB 329, called the California Healthy Youth Act is now fully in force here in California as of January 1st. And wait till you find out what's in this bill that is now compulsory sex education in California. Some of it going all the way down to as early as kindergarten. Last time I checked, we're talking, what, five, six-year-olds? I mean, we're we're sexualizing and, and, and training children about sex at the age of six by state law. If you think we just haven't opened up a Pandora's box, just wait. We'll get more details. Marlo Tucker joins us the second hour of tonight's program. Also looking forward to a conversation about the impact and influence of the Latino culture here in California, in particular within the church, the body of Christ. And for a long time, many Latinas have felt marginalized by machismo within the culture, by prejudice and discrimination outside of the culture. But as my guest tonight will argue, there is a strong and influential block of women within the church today that are ready to take it to the next level. They are desirous of not only deepening their identity, but growing their influence for the kingdom. We're going to talk about that as Christy Garza Robinson joins us later on in tonight's program. But I want to lead off with a story, if I can. And it's uh, where, once again, the First Amendment rights issue takes center stage right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And when I first read about this story, it was close to my heart because the organization at the focus of this debate The Fellowship of Christian Athletes is an outfit that I was involved with for many, many years back when I was in high school. It had a very positive influence on my life, as it has literally on the lives of of tens of hundreds of thousands of students all across the state of California, and I suppose down through its 50-plus year history, millions across the country. Well, recently, a young lady, a sophomore at Homestead High School, attended an FCA 
huddle or a leadership conference and came back so impressed that she felt compelled to start an FCA huddle at the campus of her high school at Homestead High in Cupertino. And that's where the problem started. Picking up the story, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, counselor, always great to have you with us. Tell us more about what happened here. Seems to be fairly innocuous, a globally recognized organization with a 50-, 60-year history um, that uh, would have a presence, a ministry presence, under the leadership of local students on a high school campus. What could possibly go wrong? Well, it's, uh, it, it is real unfortunate because uh, this girl, uh, sophomore, she was on fire to have a, an FCA uh, chapter there, and, and uh, she did what was required, submitted the request, uh, introduced the club, uh, gave information, and they decided that uh, that there was already a, uh, a a Christian club, and that was that was good enough. They didn't need more than one. Uh, they said that um, you know that the video seemingly uh, indicates that it's quote not open to just to, not open to uh, to anyone, but uh, which is not true. And then uh, they also said it was hard to to lose the Christian focus. Well, that's the purpose of it, is the Christian focus. So they seemingly implied that uh, it'd only be accepted if it didn't have such a Christian focus. And, um, and then finally, they said the club's, op- the club's officers uh, do not show uh, any qualifications. Well, what do they mean by qualifications? We're talking about students or the officers. Uh, it was just uh, unfortunate, and we at Pacific Justice were called in, and we sent a demand, demand letter to the uh, school district superintendent uh, laying it out very clearly uh, why this was um, illegal and unconstitutional. And it sounds as if, at least initially, the Associated Student Body there at uh, Homestead just sort of pulled things out of thin air in terms of bringing about these these pretexts that would deny the student uh, body or the group to have the right to begin an FCA um, huddle or, or chapter on the campus. I mean, you know, to, to, to say that, you know, they don't, they don't show any qualifications. Well, for a student-led organization, what exactly does that mean? Right. It, 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 it did show a, a clear um, bias, if you will, I believe, by the, by the student, by student leadership, uh, the student council, if you will. Uh, and, uh, but the good news, is that the superintendent uh, heard us loud and clear, and he responded uh, cooperatively to our request uh, and uh, for equal access for that club. And not only that, but he's also uh, made the commitment that he's going to um, uh, have training for uh, schools in the school district to make sure that this doesn't happen again, district-wide training. So I, I think this is yeah, definitely a positive. And it also sends a message to Craig that, that if anyone has this kind of problem, they should know where to, where to go. But we at Pacific Justice Institute will step in no matter where this is in the country uh, to, to assist them. But, of course, the San Francisco Bay Area uh, is not the most tolerant at times to people of faith. We know that, and we have an office there and, a, and an uh, attorney there to, to represent them and help them as needed. But certainly encouraging that in this case, because they did contact uh, Pacific Justice, you were able to intervene, communicate with the superintendent, uh, educate them on what the law has to say on such matters, and all of this was um, amicably worked out, and in fact uh, sounds like a real upside or a real positive side for the future of 
um, Bible-based or Christian-based um, campus clubs across the uh, the school district. So that certainly is good news. Now, there's another story, though, I want to have you give us an update on, and this is out of Kennewick, Washington. Um, there, apparently, in that in that part of the state, is a an evangelist who comes and shares outside of a Planned Parenthood clinic. And uh, in the course of doing so, apparently had a run-in with the law related to noise ordinances. Now, I just have to wonder, uh, compared to a rock band, just how much noise can a lone preacher actually make that he would be in violation of the city's noise ordinance? Uh, Exactly. Um, You know, this this guy was, uh, you know, he was out there near Planned Parenthood Clinic uh, preaching uh, and uh, preaching uh, is a you know message and it's a Christian solid Christian messaging and and uh, and sharing and uh, and the Planned Parenthood of course didn't like this uh, so they decided to call the police the police have him uh, criminally charged and uh, was being prosecuted for uh, allegedly for quote loud and uh, you know a frequent and repetitive and continuous noise uh, sounds made by his amplified voice uh, end quote. And yet, uh, we we went ahead and represented him. Uh, the good news here, because you know, he was being currently prosecuted, and our attorney up there, uh, Jorge Ramos, uh, did an excellent job representing him in court. Filed a motion to dismiss. And the good news is that the uh, the county uh, district judge uh, agreed and dismissed this, uh, the criminal charges against this public evangelist who regularly preaches uh, in this area. And uh, we're really glad. Uh, to to see that that final result, but um, no one no one should be criminally prosecuted and and uh, much less convicted and have to spend up to a year behind bars in the United States of America for openly publicly sharing the hope of Christ. No doubt there are some eavesdropping on our conversation, myself included, that have had occasions to call the police because of a raucous, noisy party taking place well into the wee hours of the morning, you know, at a neighbor's house and had, uh, if not a delayed response by the police department in some areas of the Bay Area, I suspect uh, no response whatsoever. So it's 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 encouraging to hear that while the police seem to be right on top of this noise complaint, uh, the the issue of the balance between noise complaints and First Amendment rights um, in the end won out, and the basic fundamental right of this evangelist to be able to freely share his faith in a public arena has been protected. Yes, it has been protected, and and uh, his ability to communicate uh, to share the hope and truth uh, with women who uh, who may be going into that Planned Parenthood I, uh, is is protected, and I I, uh, I know that this is uh, very important for us to uh, to protect uh, across the country to for people to be able to openly share their faith, preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul did it um, in the in the Book of Acts. Uh, the early church did it. Our founding fathers uh, did it. Um, that that right of freedom is very important, and we uh, we at Pacific Justice Institute understand that are willing to represent anyone in this similar situation practically around the country without charge. A, uh, a good telephone number to keep uh, handy is that, of course, of the Pacific Justice Institute. And, of course, you can get information about the work of the Institute um, anytime online by going to pacificjustice.org. That's Pacific 
Justice.org. Constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. As always, counselor, we appreciate the time and the update. 516. Let's get a look at traffic right now. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center and see what Michael Bennett's got to say about your Wednesday ride home. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you were anything like me as a kid growing up, you probably had um, various bouts when the folks said, okay, time to get ready. Sunday morning, we're going to go to church, but first we're all going to Sunday school. (laughs) And when you reached a certain age, you determined uniquely on your own that you were simply too school for Sunday school. But are you really? When you think about the impact of Sunday school, um, the the role that it plays, um, I think a lot of times we sort of fall short of really fully understanding how critical Sunday school can be, and that in fact in many layers, uh, according to many, including my next guest, the role of Sunday school in the church's overall strategy um, to fulfill the Great Commission is vital. It is key. Let's find out why. Alan Taylor joins us, Director of Sunday School and Church Education Ministry at Lifeway Christian Resources. Alan served some 20 years as the Minister of Education at First Baptist Church in Woodstock, Georgia. He's authored three best-selling books on the topic, including Sunday School in HD, The Six Core Values of Sunday School, and Disciplining and Restoring the Fallen. He's going to be one of the uh, important speakers at the upcoming 57th Annual Bass Church Workers Convention coming to the Bay Area March 7 through 9. And, Alan, welcome. We look forward to your visit here also to the Bass Convention next week. Well, thank you very much, and I'm excited to get to come to the uh, Bay Area and be a part of this great event. Tell us a bit about uh, th- this perspective on on Sunday school. You know, some people have sort of taken the the approach to this that it's well, it, it's just supplemental. It's in addition to what you get out of the content that the minister brings from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Um, is that necessarily the case? Is it something that just sort of a uh, maybe you can use it, maybe you can't, or is it really at the end of the day foundational to theological understanding and discipleship? Well, it's certainly uh, very foundational to discipleship. We know from Mark chapter 3 and verse 14 that the Scripture says that Jesus ordained the twelve that they should be with him and that he not send them forth to preach. And so I think we have a perfect model of discipleship there, and certainly. And so he chose to really disciple the twelve. Now, we know he spoke and ministered to uh, the multitude that he really poured himself into and really discipled the twelve. And so he chose them that they might be with him. And then, of course, the whole purpose was then for him to be able to disciple them and then send them forth to preach. And so I, I think that the best discipleship model we have today is still in a small group setting, and certainly you can't improve on what Jesus did. Uh, that being the case, then Sunday school becomes vital in the discipling process of any individual as we have two ingredients at work in a person's life there in Sunday school, and that is the Word of God and also the people of God, as uh, other people get to speak into your life and uh, 
and as it, it, the scripture speaks about iron sharpening iron, uh, you put yourself in that kind of an environment. I, I've I've been reading an interesting article on this topic that I think um, might be one that can help set a lot of us straight on the issue of Sunday school, whether you have perhaps a distorted viewpoint of Sunday school going back from your childhood years, or maybe even something today as an adult, you see it as kind of just a, an extra demand on your time on a Sunday morning, and therefore maybe not all that important. This issue of the role that it plays, I guess, really needs to be answered from the viewpoint of the goal of Christian uh, formation or Christian education, and that is not to create churchgoers. But in fact, the goal is to raise up disciples of Christ. So maybe part of the problem here for some is simply a matter of perspective, that they've, they've, they've got the wrong idea about what Sunday school is about in the first place. Uh, very true. Uh, you know, one of the biggest obstacles we have to overcome with Sunday school is the fact that, you know, in so many of our churches, we have Sunday school, but we don't use Sunday school. And I think that's where uh, that so many people miss the importance of Sunday school is they've never been taught or shown how Sunday school can be used and not just uh, that we would have it. Uh, when uh, I had the opportunity to speak next week at the conference, I'm actually going to speak on Sunday school as a strategy to fulfill the Great Commission. And, uh, you know, when you stop and think about any organization on earth, whether it's a church or a any other organization, a business, a civic organization, a sports organization, uh, every organization has to answer two, two questions. The first question is what? And that is, what is our purpose? Uh, what are we here to accomplish? And certainly answer that question, what, it gives you your organization, your mission. Well, for the church, we uh, we ask the question, what is our purpose? When that that's really already been answered by, by Christ when he told us to go and make disciples of all nations baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So uh, Jesus, the head of the church, has already given the church what its purpose is. He's answered that what question for us, and, and that gives us our mission, and that is the Great Commission. But the second question that every organization, including churches, have to deal with is not only what, but, but how. How are we going to go about doing the what? And, and other businesses and all Oh, did we lose him there? Joel, it sounds like maybe he's, he's on a cell phone. sounds like maybe he might have slipped off there. Uh, while they're trying to see if they can raise Alan again, Alan Taylor is going to be one of the keynote speakers at the upcoming 57th Annual Bass Convention. That convention, once again, hosted this year at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. The dates are March 7, 8, and 9. It'll begin on Thursday with uh, pre-registration and, of course, the the evening session, the evening general session at 7 o'clock, and then all day, both Friday and through a good portion of the day, I think till about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday. We'll be broadcasting live as we normally do from 5 until 7 p.m. Get a chance to meet a lot of the keynote speakers and workshop leaders. That'll be beginning at 5 p.m. right here on KFAX one week from tomorrow. Again, that'll be March 7th, 8th, and 9th. 
held at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. Details available on the web at BassConvention.org. Now, Alan, before we got interrupted, you were talking about that, that second important perspective in relationship to how we ought to be not only viewing but utilizing Sunday school education. Yes, sir. Um, was just mentioning the fact that we have to answer that what question, but we have to answer the how question. How are we going to about accomplishing the what? And, and very honestly, most churches have never uh, dealt with that. Uh, and we know that the Great Commission is our marching orders from our Lord, but we never really stop to think about how are we going to go about accomplishing that. And um, I have just uh, experienced and seen uh, Sunday school used in a great way to do that very thing, so that it's uh, organized and structured. Um, and with the mission to accomplish the Great Commission in a local church. And, you know, you touched on something earlier, Alan, that I think is important to highlight, underscore, italicize, put in bold, and that is this concept of iron sharpening iron. One of the beautiful things that I appreciated about Sunday school, particularly when I was younger in my, my early years as a believer, was the opportunity to ask questions. It's a little difficult, if not outright awkward, uh, during the preacher's sermon on Sunday mornings. Excuse me, Pastor, can you please explain or uh, take me a little bit deeper on that? I'm not quite capturing what you're saying. It's just not an appropriate place to do it. But in the Sunday school classroom setting where we can both uh, hear and exchange ideas and, most importantly, be able to ask questions and get answers really helps to foster one's deeper understanding of not just what the Bible is, but how to study the Bible and how to apply it to our own lives. Uh, very true. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's amazing how that people will see a perspective of Scripture that we often miss, uh, or they will have studied the Scripture in a, in a way and in, a, in depth that maybe we haven't. And one of the great beauties of Sunday school is that, uh, you know, it's life on life. Uh, and you mentioned in the worship service, you, you really can't just raise your hand during the sermon and say, wait a minute, preacher, I need to get some clarification here. But uh, the beauty of Sunday school, of course, is that you can, you know, uh, in, in the worship service, you said in rows, but in Sunday school, you said in circles. In the worship service, you look at the back of someone's head, and in Sunday school, you look into someone's face. And so it really puts it on a, a very personal level for every individual and, and to where you can have the comfort level to, to get those, as you mentioned, get your questions answered. Would you concur with the perspective, and I'm sure that you're going to be touching on this in your, your address when you attend the upcoming Bass Convention. Again, the dates on that for listeners will be Thursday, Friday, Saturday, March 7th, 8th, and 9th, hosted at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. Complete details and reservations available at BassConvention.org. That's BassConvention.org. Alan, would you concur with the notion that if Sunday school is done right, it can really be transformative to a church's culture? Oh, absolutely. In fact, some of the greatest churches that we uh, have in our country are churches that have a very strong Sunday school. And, you know, one of the beauties of, of, of Sunday school, um, it, it, it leverages the spiritual gifts of people. And, of course, those spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit. And uh, without Sunday school uh, and, or some kind of small group venue, how do how does a church leverage the spiritual gifts of its people? Certainly there, there can be other venues, but you're going to miss out on so many 
people using what the Holy Spirit's given them if, if you don't have Sunday school. And for most of our churches, Sunday school is the largest ministry in the church, and so it employs a lot of people in the work of the church. And uh, so it's, it's a great asset. Uh, it's not just something the church has to have and put up with because a few people want it. It's a great asset to a church. And as I think you'll learn at the convention coming up uh, next week, uh, if, as you kind of go deeper in this topic, you'll begin to realize that if the application is right, uh, it can be transformative, as Alan Tater suggests, and can also completely change about the thinking. So you move from the crowd that says, hey, I'm too cool for Sunday school, to instead, I'm too cool to miss Sunday School. Alan Taylor, Director of Sunday School and Church Education Ministry at LifeWay Christian Resources. He's got decades of experiences in Christian education and many years, of course, there at First Baptist Church in Woodstock, Georgia. He'll be out and speaking at the upcoming 57th Annual Bass Church Workers Convention. Details available on the web at bassconvention.org. Don't forget, Lifeline will be on the road broadcasting live both Thursday and Friday. So if you're going to be there, we hope that you are. We also hope that you'll drop by and say hello. Our thanks to Alan Taylor. Details again on the web at bassconvention.org. All right, 5.31 on the clock. Let's uh, check in with Michael Bennett again here at the KFAX Traffic Center. See how your ride so far this Wednesday is going. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. We're here at 536 on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Let's talk about identity and influence. There are two key factors that present um, both Christianity and uh, our opportunity, rather, and challenge for many so-called subcultures within our American culture today. We are Americans, yes, by virtue of geography, parentage, birthright, and our citizenship. But we are also Asians and Africans and Latinos and Europeans and so many other subcultures that make up and comprise our American culture. While we celebrate and rejoice in the commonality we hold as Americans all, let us not forget the history, blessings, challenges, and responsibility that attends to our familial culture, our identity, and our influence. For millions of Latinos, finding identity and voice can be challenging, especially in today's political environment. Joining me now is one of the three authors of a brand new book out that specifically addresses this issue of deepening identity and growing influence amongst not just the broader Latino community, but most specifically amongst Latinas or Latin women. The book is called Hermanas, Deepening Our Identity and Growing Our Influence. And joining me is one of its three authors, Christy Garza Robinson. Christy, by the way, is a third-generation Mexican-American from South Texas and co-founder of 58, a ministry created to help the church and other organizations that desire systemic and racial justice. And Christy, great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. It is a timely topic 
to be sure, particularly here in California, and, and, and no doubt you're seeing some of this down in, in your part of the state as well, when we have so much conversation about border walls and immigration and things of this sort, and it seems as if a lot of the key and important influential Latino voices related to identity and influence are kind of getting lost in, in the din of all of this noise. Give us a bit of an insight into the motivation behind your work, along with co-authors Natalina, Natalina Cohen and Naomi Vega uh, Quinones in writing this book. Yeah, well, it really was birthed out of our ministry of discipleship and mentorship of Latina college students um, within the Latino community for the last 15 or so years, and there was a desire to see a resource created that could help people continue to connect what it means to be Latina and a follower of Jesus, um, and to see our stories and the scriptures as well. So, you know, you hear a lot about a heart for representation, a desire to see ourselves represented in broader culture, but we also wanted people to be able to see themselves in the Bible. So we were motivated to have our influence um, go more broadly through a resource like a book. So that was some of what was prompting us to get a, be a part of this project. What about for you personally? You, you describe in the book having spent your childhood, your formative years, um, we mentioned you're from South Texas. You talk about um, emotionally and geographically straddling the border of the United States. Well, what exactly does that mean? What was that existence, that growing up life uh, like for you? Yeah, so growing up in a border city um, along the border of Mexico and Texas, so right at the tip, um, towns like McAllen, Edinburgh, um, there's a sense that you are still a part of the Mexican culture, being so close, and a lot of people having family on both sides. It's predominantly the Latino part of the state. Um, but we, I was also um, a part of evangelicalism. I came to faith in a white evangelical church, and so I was very influenced by white culture, um, but also came from an environment and a family that really valued my Latino heritage and was shaped and formed by that as well. So you just kind of exist in two different places. I talk about um, how I have an attachment to Mexico, although it's an attachment that I don't think Mexico has to me since I'm American. But then even within U.S. white culture, I can feel displaced. And so you just kind of live in between these two cultural worlds. Um, which gives you familiarity with both, but not necessarily a home in both. And so that's some of some of my story that I've had to work out as I matured. There's this sense, and and you delineate the fact that it it seemed to work both ways, meaning both from the the uh, white community around you in which you grew up, as well as the Latino community, that there were times that it was either or, as opposed to a, a both and proposition and I think you know geography certainly plays a role in this and, and whether or not you're 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 coming here as a more recent immigrant or have uh, roots that go back many centuries certainly uh, there were people a hundred years ago that immigrated to the United States from places like Ireland and Italy uh, that had challenges during those times and then later on felt as if well they were able to maintain a sense of, of uh, connection to their uh, historical or familial uh, roots 
but they never felt as if they were forced to necessarily deal with the either-or equation. It was more of a both-and. So for you, was that challenging, having to face um, some of the prejudices um, from both within and without as you tried to do this delicate dance, uh, so to speak, between being a Latina that was both American and Latino or Mexican? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's extremely challenging. I think um, the nature of our culture, U.S. culture, particularly right now, um, we like to um, kind of reduce people to one identity. We struggle to let people be whole people where they have lots of different parts of their identity. They're Latina, they're women, they're um, a broad range of things that impact a person's identity. I'm a mom, I'm a wife. Um, and so trying to be able to hold all parts of myself, yes, having grown up here in the U.S., obviously I'm very influenced by that part of the culture, but having an identity that also is connected to ethnicity and being able to hold both of those together, again, in a culture that tries to minimize you and make you fit into one box. So the work of discipleship and maturity in Christ, I think, is holding all of those identities, believing that God has all of those as a part of you for a reason. And certainly, I think, from a broader perspective, I mean, that, that's true of everyone, that ultimately our identity, first and foremost, uh, you know, what is the old saying? We're, we're, we're a resident of this world, but we're not a citizen of it, that we we ought to ultimately find our true um, full completeness of identity in who we are in Christ Jesus. That isn't to discount in any fashion uh, birthright and heritage and things of that sort, but, uh, you know, it's it's a matter of understanding from, from a biblical perspective, from a Christian perspective, how God really wants us to first identify, and that is uh, as, a, as a child created in his very likeness and image, and all of the other identity factors sort of fall in line following that. I have to wonder, too, from from your perspective, not only some of the challenges in terms of of attitudes from within the Latino culture, from outside of the Latino culture, as we speak about the issue of deepening your identity and growing your influence specifically or uniquely as a Latina woman, were there challenges as well growing up, and do there continue to be in in some of the influence of the, the, the machismo that exists within Latin culture? Yeah, I definitely see that can be a struggle for a lot of Latina, a lot of women within the culture, um, trying to find our voice within a very um, male-driven context. But, but I mean, that's pretty. That can be really similar to other spaces too. This patriarchal sense of where do women fit within that, and do we have space for all of us to be used by the Lord and wherever He has us. So I guess it ultimately comes down to a matter of not only finding your voice, but then learning how to use that voice, express that voice, and and where and and to what degree can it be put to use for the greatest positive influence um, at multiple layers, whether we're talking about within your, your own family unit, within your culture, within the broader society around you, with, within, quite frankly, the, the opportunity that's there to be a voice and an influence for, for positive change within America. American culture and society at the broadest degree. If you've just joined us, we're visiting today with Christy Garza Robinson. She is the co-author of a new book called Hermanas, 
Deepening Our Identity and Growing Our Influence. This book, by the way, newly published by InterVarsity Press, we thought the timing of it very important because uh, there is so much dialogue taking place today, and unfortunately in the political arena, much of it very disparaging or very negative in relationship to the Latino community. And a book like this, I think, can not only bring about uh, an opportunity to sort of correct the record, but also to help people from the outside of the Latino community get a glimpse in and understand the richness of all that it offers, and then for those within the Latino community to discover how to deepen their identity and grow their influence, and specifically so in the case of influence in the uh, the realm of Latino women. We'll take a brief time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. We'll talk a bit about how do you go about finding that voice and then what's the best platform to use it and to amplify it. Our conversation with Christy Garza Robinson, co-author of Hermanas, Deepening Our Identity and Growing Our Influence, continues right after this. This, of course, a look at traffic, for which we'll head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center and get the latest for you with Michael Bennett at 557. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. We're visiting today with one of the authors of a new book called Hermanos, Deepening Our Identity and Growing Our Influence. Christy Garza Robinson, as we mentioned, is a third-generation Mexican-American from South Texas, co-founder of 58, a ministry created to help the church and other organizations that desire systemic and racial justice. Let's talk about finding voice. Uh, we mentioned a number of factors before the break um, Christy, that in many ways work against women finding their voice. And then, of course, the challenge of not just finding it, but then learning how to um, exercise it, how to amplify it and the pat- platform where that can happen, particularly when we talk about being a force for change and influence from a cultural and spiritual standpoint. Walk us through what a journey like that looks like and what did the journey look like for you? Yeah, well, for me personally, uh, gave me my identity, I look to the stories of women in the scriptures to kind of see them as, like, the reason we called it Admanas. We wanted people to understand the women in the scriptures as our, like, ancient mentors, our ancient Admanas sisters um, who have a story to tell us and that can help us understand our own faith journeys. And so for me, again, growing up on the border, Growing up, even as a light-skinned Latina, um, that having impact and privilege that comes along with it, I, I needed to learn to embrace all of who I was. So this dichotomy of feeling like I was in between two different places, I needed to learn that God had given me an identity as a Latina, as well as an American, and what does it look like to use that for His glory. And so I was really drawn to the story of Esther, which was one of the women that I wrote about in the scriptures. Um, it's seems that Esther, God raised her up for such a time as this to help rescue her people. Um, and so recognizing that God has placed us all in different spaces of influence to bring his justice, to bring his shalom, to be witnesses for Christ. And so 
I think it looks different for everybody. For me personally, it's a part of my own story. And then embracing leadership and embracing um, recognizing that God has made me a leader. All of that took um, work and growth and maturity through modern mentors and ancient mentors from the scriptures. So that's part of how I got where I am. And you really need to sort of break break out of that mold of, of being marginalized, whether it's taking place within the Latino community or outside of the Latino community. And certainly this is not only something that that is, is critical from a cultural standpoint, but let's face it, this is an issue that most women um, have had to struggle with um, in this effort to find a voice for, you know, the better part of certainly American history. Fortunately, we're starting to make some pretty significant positive strides in that arena. But if we look at glass ceilings and, and uh, worker pay differentials between men and women, it still demonstrates that we've got a long way to go. Right. Yeah, I would agree. And I think um, these these are realities that we all live within. Um, and I think looking to some of these ancient mentors, like we draw out different stories of even women in the scriptures that weren't even given names, like a bleeding woman, she was never named. But God gives all of us agency, and we all have spaces of influence that he invites us into while we're wrestling with the broader, more systemic issues within the U.S. Um, related to gender or race. And so those are very real, are not imaginary um but also recognizing we do have agency in the midst of that and what is God calling us to. So that's part of what the book talks about. So, so really, the, the, the three authors, uh, yourself along with Natalia Cohen and Naoma Vega uh, Quinones, have, have worked together to look at many of the leading historical women of the Bible and how their influence, how their stories can lead women of the church today. You mentioned Esther, one that you focused on. And, of course, it's throughout the pages of the book Hermanas, we see stories of the life of Mary, Deborah, Ruth, Naomi, um, all throughout the pages, essentially sort of taking the examples of what they had to overcome and even more difficult circumstances oftentimes than even what we face today as really a beacon of hope for modern Latina women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, even talking about issues around the border, immigration, one of the women that I highlight is the story of Ruth. That's a that's a story of migration and how did God use that for his mission and his purpose and the broader history of the church and um, where we are today. And so I think there's very relevant stories that matter today, um, and especially for stories like, for me, as a third-generation Latina, that means my grandparents migrated, and they have their own story of how they got here, but then I'm also engaging with immigrants and migrant women, and I share those stories as well. And so what does it look like for us to raise our voices on behalf of others in our community, too, in a culture that can feel very um, hostile? And toward that end, the American history, of course, is littered with uh, sad stories of many mistakes that we as a nation and people have made. Certainly African Americans know that well from uh, over 250 years of um, slavery, uh, both culturally and institutionally, and many of the vestiges of that uh, continue to linger on and leave a black mark on American society uh, to this very day that African Americans have to struggle to deal with and, and address and overcome. The church certainly has been a major in influence in that. We see the roots of the church not only in terms of of influencing leadership of the 1800s to bring about um, the Emancipation Proclamation, but then the church boldly in the forefront of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. 
Um, do you see this same necessity uh, beginning to call to the church within the Latino community today as many Latin Americans are, are facing uh, maybe not similar challenges in terms of the, the, the depth of racism and, and certainly uh, slavery that African Americans have faced historically in America, but their own set of challenges today, particularly with such rampant racism that seems to be tied into uh, attitudes of some people that uh, are, are, are quick to say, throw up a wall and and very slow to understand what the challenges are being faced by the Latino community, not just here in the United States, but those that seek to try to come here? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's part of what we talk through in the book is what is what is our role as Latino leaders in the landscape of today related to what's happening within the Latino community connected to justice or injustice that they're experiencing. Um, and I, I think you see that, right, with the civil rights movement. Yes, the church is some of the churches at the forefront, but particularly the black church, the African-American church, they were leading the way. They were inviting us to see it as a spiritual a spiritual reality that needed breakthrough. And so I think the same invitation is being offered in the book at Mana is around Latino leadership of what is our space to be voices towards change and to fight to break down different systemic injustices that our community is dealing with and viewing that as a part of like a holistic picture of the gospel we're invited to tear down dividing walls. We're invited to call for God's peace and justice in the world. And so I think we as Latinas have a role to play in that. And I think we can look to these ancient mentors that we highlight in the scriptures to give us a roadmap for what that might look like. For And it will be different for each of us, but um, I think there's an invitation there for sure. And, and I think you see that already, right? The Latino church is thriving. You know, you hear a lot about the church in decline, but if you look at the immigrant church, the Latino immigrant church is blossoming, it's beautiful, and it's drawing people to a vibrant faith um, across the country and across racial and ethnic lines. So it can be a really beautiful opportunity for people, too. So. Well, and 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 let me add, not only across the country, but but even across the the hemisphere, uh, both north and south. Because while we hear a lot about the phenomenal growth of the church in places like the continent of Africa or in Asia, um, we sadly don't often hear uh, how incredible the church is growing in Central and South America, and uh, the the influence of Christianity. Um, I'm not talking about a particular uh, denomination, but Christianity overall uh, is having a, a is becoming a positive force for change in many parts of Latin America. And as you're suggesting now, high time that we see the same thing begin to really, uh, in, a, in a tremendous and 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 uh, substantive way, take root here in America. Absolutely. The book again is called Hermanas. Deepening Our Identity and Growing Our Influence, newly released by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at Bay Area Bookstores, certainly Amazon.com has it. You can also check out more information about the book and Christie's ministry if you go to her website, Yo Soy Christie, Christie with a K, dot com. Christy Garza Robinson, thanks so much for the time today on this edition of Lifeline. Six o'clock straight up from KFAX San Francisco. We're going to get a look at some headline news. But first, let's get a look at some headline traffic for you as you make your way home on this Wednesday. Michael Bennett, what's the latest out there?
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.